The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Let me begin with a story. The title of this story is The Loudest Fight That Kirsty and I Ever Had. Um, it was about 2 a.m., and I have shared this story before. It was about 2 a.m. on a weeknight, uh, a little less than around 10 years ago. Um, our daughter Noah, who was about eight to nine months uh, old, she was furiously growing her first ever set of teeth, and none of us had slept for months on end. We, we had very little sleep for a long time. So we were pretty tired, we were pretty uh, sketchy at that moment, and we were arguing about who was going to go to bed, who was going to stay up with a child, and who was going to go to bed. I argued that Kirsty should be the one who goes to bed. Uh, because she hadn't had more than about three hours of sleep in a row for about eight to nine months. Uh, She argued that I should go to bed while she takes care of the child because I had a huge exam the next day at Bible college. And so there we were in Fernie Hills in our hallway, yelling at each other, screaming at each other, baby crying in Kirsty's arms, just like, just, we were, we, were a, we were a puddle of mess. We were just, just at the end of our rope, basically, just losing it at each other. And at one stage, uh, Kirsty even opened the linen cupboard, not because she needed any linen, but because she just wanted something to slam to, for, to really drive home her argument. And so we were just losing at each other. So I, I, she won the argument. I went to bed and I laid there for the next few hours trying to get back to sleep, but I'm um, not having much luck at all. Now, that's actually part two of a story that I'm going to complete in just a few moments. But before I do that, I, I want to talk about a problem that each of us have. It's what the Bible designates and, and uh, points to as a worship problem. Our worship problem is that we worship the wrong things. Now, worship, by worship, I don't mean that we necessarily write songs and sing songs to those things. I mean that by worship, I mean putting our hope in something that isn't God and hoping that that thing will give us meaning and identity and purpose in life. Now, it doesn't matter what that thing is. If we put our hope in that thing to bring us meaning, that's what worship is. We're actually worshiping that thing. And the Bible calls this idolatry. And the reason why the Bible prohibits idolatry is because first and foremost, God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Our worship is heavy. Our worship is valuable. And God Almighty, the God who we've been singing to this morning, the God who we've been celebrating this morning, that God, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of us, of us devoting our lives to Him and hoping in Him for our value, for our happiness, for our meaning, for our purpose in life. He is the only one who is worthy of that. The second reason why the Bible prohibits idolatry is because when we worship the wrong thing, that thing begins to control our lives. And ultimately, that thing will destroy our lives if it's left unchecked. So as an example, a person who believes that uh, the only way that they can have meaning and purpose in life is if they have a certain level of comfort. Uh, they, they attain a certain uh, quality of life. That person will ultimately come under the compulsion to get that quality of life and get that level of comfort at all costs. They simply must have it. 
which means if they must have it, if they have to do anything that they can to get that thing, then that thing is now in charge. That thing now rules over them. That thing is now king in their lives, and they have to, do, they have to obey everything that that thing demands of them because they believe that the only way they can ever be fulfilled is if they get that thing. And this gets us to the essence of sin. Because when we, we are under the influence of such thoughts, everything else in our life basically gets turned into a means to get that thing. So that person who is comfort as an idol will happily and willingly do things that they otherwise might disparage if it means they might get that quality of life. They'll put everything on the line for that quality of life. They will willfully and happily use people and relationships, and spend whatever it takes to get what they're after, because if comfort is number one, then everything else is simply just a means to get that comfort. This is why the Bible talks about idolatry so much, and this is why you can't talk about sin without talking about idolatry. Uh, Now, Darren Patrick, who was a pastor and is unfortunately no longer with us, he wrote a book, and in that book he identified four key areas of idolatry. Four, um, he calls them the four source idols. So there's these surface idols, but then uh, there's these source idols. They're, they're underneath all of those things. And those idols are underneath the sin in our lives. And here's, here's the four things that he identifies. Firstly, there is comfort idolatry. My life only has meaning if I have a certain quality or experience of life. We've just been talking about that. Then there's approval idolatry. My life only has meaning if I am loved, respected, and valued by certain people around me. Thirdly, there is control idolatry. My life only has meaning if I can get mastery over a certain area of my life. And then there is power idolatry. My life only has meaning if I have a certain level of power and influence over people. Now, whether or not that list is complete or comprehensive, That's beside the point. It just gives us a bit of a grid to understand this a bit. But as you consider that list, we should should ask ourselves, what category do I fall into? Like as I look look at that list, where where do I struggle with sin? Where Where do I struggle with that kind of idolatry in my life? See, whichever one you most easily fall into, whether it's comfort or approval or control or power, that thing will promise us that if we get it, we'll have bulletproof joy. We'll, have, uh, we'll be content forever and we'll be complete, lacking in nothing. But that thing won't deliver. It can't deliver. In fact, it will rob us of, of meaning. It will rob us of the thing that we're going after it for and we'll be left feeling emptier than ever. And not only that, but the idols of our lives, they will destroy our relationships, they will isolate us from people and ultimately they will isolate us from God. Now, for me personally, uh, getting personal here, the struggle for me is approval idolatry. That's the thing I struggle with. And when left unchecked, that manifests itself in hundreds, thousands of different ways. Basically, there is something inside of my heart that says that I need to be loved and valued by people around me, and the more important those people are, the more more valued I'm going to feel, the better I'm going to feel about my life. And if I don't have that then I am nothing. 
That's, that's the battle I've got to fight. And, and whether that's the same thing for you, and it might be control or power or comfort, that you, you're under the impression, I've got to have that thing, and if I don't have that thing, then I am nothing. Let me give you an example of how, of how this has played out in my life. When I, uh, when I started at Bible college, I was determined to do really, really well at Bible college. Now, on the outside, working hard to, to achieve well and get high grades in Bible college is perhaps one of the most pious things you can do. Like, no one's going to stop you from doing that. But under the surface, it, it, it wasn't so much about just knowing the Bible better. Like, like, that was there. That was really important to me. But deep down, I just wanted people to think I was smart. I just wanted people to think, wow, isn't Jimmy clever? I just wanted people to look at me and admire me and respect me. And so I got to work with everything I had. I poured my life into the study. I, I, I sacrificed everything just to get good grades. Now, I did want to learn the Bible well, but below that, there was this feeling that I needed to have the approval of the people around me. And so I worked hard listening to that idol as it continued to promise me the world if I continued to sacrifice, if I continued to put everything on the line for that. And there wasn't many things that were off the table when it came to the kind of sacrifices that I was willing to try and make to get those good, good grades and have people like me. I slept less. I became increasingly unhealthy. I spent less and less time with my wife and my baby daughter. And it all came to a boiling point. We're in one night, about 2 a.m., we had the biggest fight of our lives the night before my final exam. You see, when an idol rules our hearts, that thing is in charge. And that thing is not kind. When an idol is in charge, it is not kind. And there's nothing that we won't sacrifice for it. It makes us treat everyone and everything as fodder for the fire. It's often disguised as a really good thing, like doing well at Bible college. We might even call it our passion. It might be one of those things that we say, you know, people, we kind of give a bit of a pass for the passion, isn't it? Oh, such and such, they work so hard, they sacrifice so much to, to get that thing or whatever it is, to whatever they're after. But it's their passion. Oh, it's, it's their passion, that's totally fine. But it pushes us. To, to saying things and doing things and thinking horrible things, neglecting the people around us just to get whatever that thing is that we think is going to bring us meaning in life. Like on that night, I even had the, this thought pass through my mind as my eight or nine-month-old daughter was in incredible amounts of pain, unable to sleep. This thought passed through my mind. How dare she? How dare she? Doesn't she know that I've got a huge exam the next day? Doesn't she know? The answer is no, she didn't know that. She, of course, didn't know that. But an idol will always put us so deeply into the middle, middle of our own universe that we will, be, we will scarcely be able to think of anybody but ourselves. And it got to the point that I was so deeply in the center of my own universe that Kirsty felt like she had to do everything in her power to settle Noah, even if it meant staying up with her all night. And the reason why we do this, the reason why we go after idols like this is because we were made to worship the king. We were made to worship a king, and not just any king, the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who we are celebrating this today as we approach Christmas. 
But because sin came and separated us from God and destroyed uh, that relationship, we now worship and serve and, and pursue cheap imitations of that king, fraudulent kings. We believe that these, these things will satisfy the eternal longings of our hearts. So sin, therefore, is misdirected worship. And you and I have no hope of pulling ourselves out of that. We have no hope of trying to free ourselves from that kind of tyranny. Any attempt that we do have will only result in another manifestation of that same idol. Our only hope is if another king, a more powerful king, the true king, the king that our hearts were made for, if he comes and he saves us and he becomes the king who we worship. And the reason why I share all of this is because in Matthew chapter 2, in a very famous story about wise men, we're actually getting, getting a tale of two kings. Now, it's known as the story of the wise men. If you came here to hear a lovely story about the wise men, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that. Today is a story about two kings. This is what this is actually about. One king is a fraud. The other king came to unseat that fraudulent king from power. So, reading from verse 1, we're introduced straight away to King Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, King Herod was a fairly horrible person. Uh, at this stage of his life, uh, historians say mentally, pretty mentally unstable. He, he murdered uh, several of his family members, including his, his, wife, who he, his second wife, who he loved, and his firstborn son, Antipater, out of paranoia. And he was actually installed by the Roman Empire as king of Judea in Rome of that, uh, sorry, in, in about 37 BC at the age of 36, so about my age, and he ruled for 32 years. But he knew, as he ruled over this region of Judea, he knew that he needed to solidify power with the Jews who were there. And so he actually divorced his first wife, Doris, and married this other woman, Mariamne, because she was a princess in a very powerful Jewish family in Judea at the time. He was trying to curry favor with the Jews who were there. But amongst the Jewish people, there were still some who were holding on to the prophetic hopes of their ancestors and believed that only the true king of, that only the true king of Israel would be someone who would come from the line of David. And the key piece of evidence for this came from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we looked at that in, I think, week 3 or 4 of uh, this, the Old Testament series, where God promised to King David that a descendant from his line would sit on the throne and would establish his kingdom forever. Now, here's the issue. Herod was not from the line of David. Herod was barely even Jewish. His father had converted to Judaism. He had married into a Jewish family, but he himself uh, was barely Jewish. And so he had to win over the Jews. And so the way he did that was to try and convince the Jews that he actually was this son of David that was prophesied. He tried to establish himself, himself as the fulfillment to the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, namely that he was a son of David. And so he set about doing what David's son Solomon did. 
and he rebuilt the temple. He renovated the Jewish temple in, in massive ways, huge, unbelievable ways, that if you go to Jerusalem, you can still see uh, the, the foundations of that temple, of, of what he built there. Uh, now, if you read Matthew chapter 1, you'll know that Matthew actually begins his gospel by naming Jesus as the son of David. Matthew's concern here is that he, his readers understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so that it's not just a nice story, but it actually would complete the story. And so you can see here why Herod, why, when Herod hears the claim that the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews had been born, he is deeply disturbed. This isn't just like someone saying, hey, I think I want to be king. This is actually... This actually poses, Jesus poses a real threat to Herod at this stage. It wasn't a random claim. This was a significant challenge to Herod. Interestingly, though, Matthew also records that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod as well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was like, what does that mean? Why why is all of Jerusalem disturbed with Herod? I didn't understand it at first, and it took me a while to get my head around it, but I think what this is telling us is that many of the Jews, I think, liked Herod. They wanted Herod as their king because Herod validated them and their system of life and religion. The renovations of the temple, they were were no small thing. They were massive, and so many Jews were happy to overlook Herod's lineage and his his horrible uh, behavior. Many of them were willing to give him a pass since he was giving them back their sense of national identity through the temple. So a king now, a new king, who threatened the, the, the legitimacy of, the, of King Herod, potentially threatened the, the, the future political stability of Judea. And this is how an idol will often function in our lives. Its loss represents a fate that is worse than death. This is one of the ways we can actually identify an idol in our lives. We can identify if something has become idolatrous to us. We can ask ourselves... What would it be like for me if I lost that thing? Would it be a fate that is worse than death? It's, it's what we think we can't live without. And so if we think about, again about those idols, comfort, approval, control, or power, which one of those things can you not live without? Which one of those things, when you look at you think, how could I ever go on in my life if I don't have that thing? Which, which represents a fate worse than death? And that's, I think, why all of Jerusalem was disturbed by this news. So Herod hatches a plot to ascertain the whereabouts of this new king. Reading from verse 4, So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now, Herod's motives are going to become clear soon enough. What he's after, though, is information. He needs to know the whereabouts of this new king, and so he asks for specific information from the wise men to narrow this down. Finding out the exact, same, exact time that they saw the star would indicate to him the child's age and putting this together with the Bethlehem prophecy, he could understand that in Bethlehem, under the age of two, that's where this king was going to be. He could get it down to probably one household. Now, 
we know at this point that this is not at all Herod's motivation. He is, not going to be, he is not going to be unseated by this new king. And one of the things that will happen when we start, to start that process of identifying idols in our lives is that those idols are the most deceptive, the idols that are the most deceptive and that pose the most threat, the biggest problems to us, are the ones that we won't suspect. In fact, those idols will sometimes come across as a means of getting, uh, getting not getting in the way of our faith, but actually helping out in our faith it will seem like that idol is actually a really positive thing for our faith, but actually it's not. It can be deceptive like Herod and will say, no, no, I'm not the enemy. I just want to go and worship the king. I just want to worship who, this, this, this king as well. I'm not going to get in between you and your relationship with God. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to help in that department. But the reality of unseating idols in our lives is that this will be met with resistance. Now, we don't know how many wise men there were, Tradition tells us that there were three, but that's because there were three gifts. We know that there were more than two. Uh, sorry, more than one. Um, there could have been two. There could have been 20. We, we don't know how many of these wise men were there. But these wise men, they were important people. They were important enough that they could cause a bit of a stir in Jerusalem. And they were important enough that they could actually get a private audience with Herod himself. And so let's look at what these important men do when they come to the place where Jesus is. After hearing the king, and actually as we read this, pay attention to the word seen or seen or saw. This idea of looking and seeing something. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was. That's the Greek word, behold. The star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. Where they, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. As As innocuous as it might sound, seeing in the Bible is a very important theme. Now, there's way too much for us to cover for the, that, that, that theme of, of sin in the Bible. But let's just look at it in comparison to uh, the way that sin actually is, is explained in the Bible as well. Now, if you were with us for the Old Testament series, we, we looked at quite a little bit um, at, the, at Eve's sin in the garden, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. That is that Eve looked at the fruit, she, she saw the fruit, she, she coveted the fruit, she saw like, I want that, and then she took it for herself. The same thing happened with Achan after the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 7. He saw the forbidden treasure. He coveted it, believing that I need that to be happy. I need that, that treasure. I need that for my life. And then he took it. Same thing happened with David and Bathsheba. He saw her. He desired her. He coveted her. And then he took. And really, every sin follows this pattern. Looking at something, thinking that I need that more than I need God thinking that I need that to be happy. I need that even despite what God has said, I want that because I'm the one who's in charge and taking that for ourselves. Notice here though, instead of seeing, coveting, taking, these wise men saw, worshipped and gave. And this is the antidote to idolatry. Looking at Jesus and worshipping the true king looking at who this king is and worshipping him, glorifying him, looking to him for your hope, looking to him to give you that answer that you hope in things. 
This is why we need to get our eyes on the grace and the love and the beauty of Jesus every single chance that we can get. So the wise men, they returned home, avoiding Jerusalem and Herod altogether. And then the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, instructing him to take his family down to Egypt to avoid Herod's imminent quest to destroy Jesus. When Herod learns this, he's livid. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. That part of the story is often left out of the kids' place for obvious reasons, right? This is horrible. Like in the midst of this nativity scene, evil's striking back. Just a horrible thing to have happened here. This is the calamity of the world that we live in. And it's the kind of calamity that often takes place in our hearts as we follow Jesus. I don't know about you, but every single time that I seem to take a step towards God, that I seem to grow in my faith, it comes with calamity. Or it comes out of calamity. Like, yes, Jesus brings peace, but we're talking about unseating false kings in our heart where they have, they have maintained their grip on our lives, maybe our entire lives. That thing has been controlling you and telling you who you are and what you're made of and telling you that you're nothing. And now a king comes along and starts saying, hey, no, no, don't listen to that anymore. Listen to me. I love you. I care about you. I'm going to lay my life down. I'll lay down my life for you. I'm going to bring you peace. And that thing that has gripped our heart is not going to go away quietly. Herod doesn't just say, oh, well, he's a new king. Must have been a pretty good run. No, he, it's volatile. He starts destroying Bethlehem. The process of removing the idols from our lives is what the Bible calls sanctification. And anyone who has had the joy of the Lord's sanctification knows that sanctification stings. This work takes us down difficult and tumultuous paths where we are confronted with the realities of our own sin. It's these times that we have the loud fights at 2 a.m. It's these times that we're going, man, God, where are you? What are you doing in my life? How could you let me get to this place? But this is also the Lord's kindness to do so. Because what he's doing in that moment, he's saying, hey, you've been leaning against this thing for far too long now. And if you keep leaning against that thing, it's not going to deliver on what it promises. It's not going to be holding. It's not going to hold up. And if you're leaning on it, when it falls, you're going to fall with it. And so Jesus, in his kindness, comes to us and exposes the idols in our life and says, hey, don't lean on that anymore. Come and lean on me. I'm never going to fall. I'm never going to be taken away. And even though it stings and even though it's painful, this is the Lord's good discipline on our life. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And isn't that like, I know some of us have walked through really, really, really rough this week, the last week, two, two weeks, month, it's been horrible. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you. He cares about me. 
And he loves us and he cares about us too much to leave any hidden sin in our lives. He just loves us too much to allow that to continue. So moving forward in verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he saw that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And it's that idea of fulfillment that I want to lead us into this final part of the sermon this morning. I want to focus on, because it draws together something that's actually been happening since the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. You see, it's almost as if what, Herod, what Matthew was doing here is he's showing us Herod's credentials and then Jesus' credentials. Like a job interview, and there's two candidates. One of them is Herod, one of them is Jesus, and Matthew was eagerly showing us both candidates' set of credentials to say, hey, this is the fraudulent king who you shouldn't trust in, this is the king who you should trust in. And so there are three things here that show us that Jesus is better than the things that we would otherwise worship. He's better than any fraudulent king that we might be inclined to give our lives to. The first thing that shows us that Jesus is better is that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had been pointing to. Over and over again, just even in this chapter, Matthew was pointing to the fact that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So... This includes uh, his birth in Bethlehem, the star that pointed to him, his family escaping to Egypt, the horrible reaction of Herod, and then the return and settlement in Nazareth. Five things in Matthew 2 alone that say Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament has been pointed towards. As I've been working and preparing on this this week, I've been trying to work out ways that I can articulate this without, beyond it just saying, sounding nice or cute or convenient. After we've been studying the, the Old Testament for the last eight weeks, this is a huge, profound meaning for at least my life personally right now, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. He's not just fulfilling abstract prophecy that has no bearing on us. He's completing the story. The story of the world which began in Genesis is being completed here in this story that we're reading this morning. It's meaningful and it's important. Jesus' credentials are that he was sent by God to complete the story that weaves throughout human history, the story of God fixing what sin broke and restoring humanity to God. You see, the promises of God was that he was going to fix what sin broke in the garden, and he was going to restore people to where they were meant to be, to be in a relationship with him. And not having that relationship with God is underneath every single problem that you and I have ever experienced. Having that dysfunctional, having that difficult relationship, with, having, having that separation, sin separating us from God is underneath every single problem that you and I have ever experienced in our lives. And Matthew was showing us Jesus' credentials to say, that's over now. Now we can come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We can be restored to worshiping the true king as we were meant to. The promises of God were that he was going to fix what sin broke and restore people to that relationship. You and I have no hope of doing that ourselves. 
You and I have no hope of obeying ourselves to, the certain, to a certain point that we can make, ourselves, make our way into God's good graces. We have no hope of doing that. We need Jesus Christ to come and do that for us, to restore us, to die for us, and to take away our sins. The second thing that shows us that Jesus is better is the way in which Jesus rules. Namely, he is a son of David. He is a shepherd. The idols that we serve and worship, they are hard taskmasters. They are unkind. They crack the whip, and whenever we, and whenever we put our foot out of line, they demand more from us, always demanding that we give more. But Jesus doesn't rule like this. Jesus is a shepherd. And that means that his followers are his sheep. His people are safe in him. Jesus' rule is a blessing to us. When we call Jesus our king, we're saying, That's, I'm under the blessing of the great high king. Jesus says this in John 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's just pay attention to that last word, those last words. No one will snatch the sheep out of Jesus' hands. Isn't that just wonderful? Like if you're here and you're a Christian, you are safe. You are secure because your king is a shepherd. And he is a kind shepherd. He is a good shepherd. This is what makes Jesus the kind of king that we would want to worship and serve. He doesn't manipulate. He gives his grace freely. He doesn't load us up with weight that we can't carry, but rather his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which means the burden that he places on us is not a burden that sinks us down. It's a burden that actually lifts us up. He, cannot, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to subject his people, but to lay down his life. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to be condemned on behalf of the world. He came not to destroy, but to give life. Jesus is better than the best king we could ever imagine. When the idols that we serve demand that we sacrifice everything we have to to have them, Jesus sacrificed his life for us. When idols always leave us with less than than we began with, Jesus gives us life for eternity. You'll never lose out with Jesus. When the idols that we serve demand that we perform or lose everything, Jesus demands that we come to him empty-handed. Any attempt that we might make ourselves to make ourselves more worthy of salvation, any attempt that we might make to make it easier for God to save us, any attempt that we might make to, to just take off the rough edges a bit and make ourselves a bit more appealing to Jesus, that doesn't help our salvation. That nullifies the grace of God. He demands that we come to him empty-handed, bringing nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Oh, what a saviour. That's, that's the God we serve. If you, come to, if you think you've got to come to Jesus, and you, if you think to yourself, you say, I've just got to get a little bit better and then I'll come to Jesus, you're wrong. You are utterly wrong, and it's good news that you're wrong. You need to know that you're wrong on that. You need to know that your Savior has his arms open wide to you, receiving you and welcoming you in, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that he has done. The third thing that makes Jesus better is that he doesn't come with the kind of power that we might expect. 
In my research this week about Herod, I learned that just before Herod was actually made king in uh, Judea, he had a smaller governing role in Galilee. But then at one point in time, he was actually ousted by the Parthians and he fled to Rome. And when he was in Rome, he gained the support of the Roman Senate and they equipped him. They sent him back to Judea to be king and they sent him back with an army. Why? Because you need an army to defeat the previous king. That's what you need to actually do that. They gave him an army because that's what you need to when you're challenging a king like this. But when God sent his son to establish his eternal kingdom, he didn't send an army to challenge the king. He sent a baby. He sent the most humble, vulnerable, understated way you could ever imagine. He sent a toddler. And here is this great King Herod with the backing of Rome itself. He's, got, he's friends with, he's friends with uh, the, the Caesars of the time. He's friends with the emperors. And he's utterly, utterly terrified about this toddler. Our God sent a baby lying in a manger. Our God sent a child who would lay down his life for us. And through his love for us, he would undermine the great infrastructures of humanity and undermine every single proud heart. And so the question for us as we examine the credentials of both of these kings is, which king are we going to serve? Now, obviously, Herod is not an option for us. I'm not suggesting that at all. But you and I, we, we, look, at the, the, we look at things in our life all the time thinking, if I have that thing, if I get that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be complete, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll have meaning in my life. And that thing is a hard taskmaster. And that's one choice. Or we have Jesus Christ, who is kind, who laid down his life for us. He took our place on the cross, who forgives the sins of anybody who comes to him. He was brought back to life. He, he, resur he was resurrected, triumphing over death so that you and I would never have to fear that. Let's worship and serve and glorify and devote our lives and put our hope in the true king. The king who came and, and his wise men bowed down and worshiped him. Let's worship him. So what does it mean to worship him? What does it, what does it look like to worship and serve God? There's a number of ways that we can answer that, but I'm going to give us just one this morning. And the reason why I've just got one is because this is actually really hard to do. Here's my only point of application for today. Let the true things that God says about you have more sway and influence over your life than the things of this world. Let me say that again. Let the true things that God says about you have more sway and influence over your life than the things of this world. That's hard. I was actually last night just praying and just saying, God, help me to believe that you love me. Like it, it felt like I was literally just pushing the love of God into my heart, saying, get in there and believe this, you dope. Stop thinking that you're somehow disqualified, that God can't love you because of your sin. Just, just receive the love of God. That's a hard task for us to do. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's let God love us. Let's, let's receive his love. Because here's the thing. 
you and I, we need God far more than we could ever imagine, far more than we could think. And God is more enthusiastic to save us than we could ever imagine. You might think that your sin, your, your accumulated sin, pushes you beyond the point of being saved. Romans 5 tells us that where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where your sin is strong and powerful, God's grace is stronger and more powerful. It abounds all the more. Where you are most sinful is where God is most gracious. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. Isn't that wonderful? Like the very thing that we hold up as a reason why we can't accept the love of God, that's where God is strongest in his grace towards us. Like that's just incredible, and we've just got to allow the Holy Spirit to push that into our hearts. You see, the story of the wise man and Herod, it isn't just a metaphor to how, for how to deal with idols in your life. It's the actual story of a very powerful ruler being dethroned by the God of grace. And where you and I have been ruled by cheap versions of God that we have put in place ourselves, our only hope is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our king and to kick those things off the thrones that they occupy in our hearts. Our only hope is a baby that was born. In, in a world that is void of compassion, God sent hope. He sent a king as a baby to inject hope into a hopeless world so that those who surrendered to him and cast off the things that once enslaved them can have life in Jesus Christ. So as we close in on Christmas, let's remember that God came to rescue people from their sin, to rescue people from their addiction to comfort, from their addiction to approval, from their addiction to power and control, and he brought us freedom as as we live in him and worship him. Our only, hope is to, to be, our only hope to be freed from the idols of our lives is to get our eyes on King Jesus, bow down, worship him, and give our lives to him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.